born in America, you're born into trauma. Okay? And so we have all the trauma, but the way that the healing happens, that that it that happened to me and is happening with me, right? This healing is not allowing the transatlantic slave trade to um to deplete me or to keep me oppressed in any way form way or form right and so what i mean by that is when we talk about the transatlantic slave trade we talk we talk about it as if we were on the boat like we were just there on the boat Okay, and so that's the trauma. So we relive the excruciating pain of it because it's like it's like recorded in our DNA. Yeah, it's unprocessed trauma, right? And so when we talk about it, it's very painful. Is is a you know we talk about it in a painful way. It's right there underneath the surface. <laughs> Welcome back to Blacks into Africa. This limited series is designed to encourage those of us in the diaspora, whether you were born in Africa or abroad, to return to the motherland. And I'm so excited that I have Karen Smith here with me. And she and I are both living our best lives here in Nairobi, Kenya. I, sh I need to tell you, she's a therapist and she got me all the way <laughs> together <laughs> before the camera started rolling. I'm like, oh my God, just read me, read me for a filth. And so what we want to talk about today is just how you've been finding Kenya, Nairobi, how you got here, okay. and also we want to talk about the healing mm -hmm. that we need to do as uh, a people. Yes. But before we get into that, please tell us more about who you are. Okay, and so uh, as as uh, my beautiful sister has said, I'm Karen. Um, I am a um, a therapist, a life coach, um, and spiritual coach. Um, I do have an online um, therapy practice, and so um, having an online therapy practice. <laughs> <laughs> right is what led me basically to Kenya. So um, I know there's um, with the epidemic. Well, I'm sorry, with the pandemic, there's so many things that has transpired. We have lost a lot of lives and that sort of thing. So um, my heart goes out to the people who have lost lives and all of that. But COVID also dropped a couple of blessings and nuggets, right? And so in the states, I had a brick and mortar office, and when the pandemic hit, I had to close my office. Mm. And I cried for about maybe 20 seconds when I realized that that was my opportunity to move to Africa. And so um, when the pandemic hit, I had to take all of my clients, move all of them online because they couldn't come into the office. And that was my opportunity to pack my bags and um, head here to the continent. So, and that's how I, I, I wind up in Kenya. Um, coming to Africa has always been a dream, always been a goal. I, I went to, I, I went to South Africa in 2016 and I knew I would come back. Um, I knew eventually that I would move here. However, I thought that I would have to have a group practice first. I had this long plan, right? I had like a five year plan to come to Africa. Well, when COVID hit, um, it moved up my plan by five years. Um, COVID hit March 
2020, February, March 2020, yeah. and I was here by November 2020. That's fast. Mm -hmm. That's mm -hmm. really fast. I think that's really magical that coming to Africa was always your plan. Why was it your plan? You know, like so many African Americans, we have a connection to Africa. When we are born in America, we're taught at a very young age that Africa that we come from Africa, right? And so there's this inner connection that I've always um, just kind of longed for when it comes to the continent. There's so many things that is happening in the U.S. You know, we're all born with this void. Mm. It's, it's like, okay, yes, I'm an American and I'm born in America, but something is missing because you never quite feel like you are a part of, like it's really your country per se, right? And so we're taught that you know our ancestors come from Africa. So we're born with that void of wanting to connect back to home. And so Africa, it, it was a part of me, you know, wanting to feel that, feel that void, right? You know, that's home. That's where the ancestors come from, right? And so I did, um, I did the African ancestry mm -hmm. test. And my maternal line goes up to Nigeria. Oh, wow. Yeah. Which ethnic group? Yoruba and Fulani. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and so I come from a lineage of Yoruba and Fulani women. Doing that, you know, you just kind of go on the spiritual journey, right? And, you know, looking to fill that void, looking for connection. You know, you're doing the, um, you do the DNA, you, you find out, you, you become curious about where you come from. Yeah. And who are your people, right? Yeah. And so that's how the journey began for me. Connecting, being my true authentic self. Connecting to what I am as a black woman. Not as an American woman, a, 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 a African American woman born in America. But as an African woman from Africa. That's beautiful. It sounds like your connection to Africa started for you very early. It wasn't something that happened later on in life. Um, my ancestry is traced on my maternal side back to the Mafa, which are located in modern day Cameroon. Mm -hmm. And on my father's side is the Mende, which are, through, they're located throughout West Africa. However, the majority of Mende people are in what we refer to as Senegal. Tell me where you're from. I am from New Orleans, Louisiana. Can't you hear the accent? You can't hear the accent. Go and say baby. Baby. I'm from New Orleans, baby. I love that so much. Yes, I said New Orleans is my country. New Orleans is my country. I remember when I went back home for the first time to visit after being here in Kenya. And... When I got, when I saw the Statue of Liberty, I saw New York, and I was like, oh, here we go, mm. right? And it was just like this sinking feeling mm. because I just, I, the, it's just the energy, it's the vibe now that I feel when I'm in America, and it's like, oh, right? But when I got to New Orleans, mm -hmm. and I started walking through the airport, 
and I heard the music overhead. I'm like, I'm home. I mean, the smile on my face. I felt so good. I'm like, I am home. So I always say, New Orleans is my country. Because it's like its own country. New it's Orleans. like its own, its own place. Yes, yes. Many people say that. They say it's like New Orleans is a country within the country. It really is. And at one point it was before mm -hmm. the British mm -hmm. purchase, before the Louisiana purchase, mm -hmm. right? When mm -hmm. the Brits purchased from mm -hmm. uh, France. Right, yeah. Because, you know, we, have a, uh, we were colonized by the French. Um, and New Orleans have a, a very French and Spanish um, influence, right? Mm -hmm. um, African, French, Spanish, and, and it shows in our food. Like I said, we have the best food um, in the United States. Not that arguably so, but Girl, New I Orleans like have the best food. <laughs> New Orleans has the best food in the world. I mean, I'm, I'm yeah. just, I really do. I feel that way. Um, so my ancestry is also from New Orleans, okay. specifically. My last name is Moignet, which ah, is French. Ah, the French, yeah. So when my father took his DNA test, his paternal lineage traced directly back to France mm -hmm. because of mm -hmm. the whole Moignet situation. Um, <laughs> some some white guy in France, you know. Right. <laughs> um, you but, come from some white man in France. <laughs> But I went to New Orleans for the first time as an adult, mm -hmm. like so many um, African Americans. Whenever I would ask my grandparents about where they came from, because all of them are from the South, different states, mm -hmm. they would tell me the past is best left in the past. Mm -hmm. But my grandfather, my paternal grandfather was so different in mm -hmm. how he dressed and what he looked like. Mm -hmm. He's Creole, or he was Creole. And and how he spoke, and I found out when he met my grandmother, she taught him English because he spoke Creole. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I was always curious about it, mm -hmm. but they didn't foster that curiosity. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I went back as an adult, and I had the food as outside of his gumbo and jambalaya. I had the food for the first time, mm -hmm. and. <laughs> It's the, it's, food it's the best food I've ever had yes. on the planet, and I've been yes. a lot of places. Yes, yes, the food is amazing. And imagine growing up, growing up in that environment, right? And so everywhere we we are kind of like I say, people from New Orleans, like we're kind of food snobs because we like what we like, right? And so we when we go to other places, and the seasonings is not quite <laughs> like how we like it, right? <laughs> born in New Orleans, you're born into um, the the Mardi Gras scene. Like, three years old, you're marching in, in parades at three years old. Like, you know, I don't know too many um, women from New Orleans that haven't been on dance teams. That's why I love to dance. Mm -hmm. Now, I want to go back to something. Um, I, when I asked my grandfather why he left, mm -hmm. uh, he basically, he was like, I left for freedom. I was tired of white folks. Yeah, the South. He yeah. was 24 when he left, mm -hmm. um, part of the great black migration in the 40s. Mm -hmm. He rode on the back of his uncle's motorcycle all the way from New Orleans mm -hmm. to the Chicago area. Mm -hmm. And 
the little bit that he did tell me about his experience was, you know, the segregation, having to get off the sidewalk for a white person, not being able to look white people in the eye, mm -hmm. the extreme colorism. Mm -hmm. He happened to be a darker Creole. And so there were, do they call them Geechee? Is that correct? Geechee, I think, is like North Carolina, South Carolina. So they, they Creole, they're Creole. In, in I remember him telling me he was Geechee or something. But I could be okay. wrong. Mm -hmm. um, but I just remember him telling me, like, there were places that his lighter skinned cousins could go mm -hmm. that he could not go. That's true. And he yeah. was sick of that shit. Yeah. So did the, did, and also, there's a, a someone much younger because obviously my grandfather was born in the in the tw late twenties. Mm -hmm. There's a younger woman that I know from New Orleans, and she wrote she was like the colorism in New Orleans almost killed her, mm -hmm. and I thought that was just such a deep statement. Yeah. So did the Southern history did the the colorism, discrimination within our own community and from without, is that something that drove you to put your eyes on Africa? Uh, I wouldn't say the colorism, okay. right? Um, because you're right, you know, colorism in New Orleans I mean, it was <laughs> extremely bad because you have to realize that, you know, you had the French there and you had the mixture, not only Africans, you also had Indians. We have a heavy Indian population. So a lot of people from New Orleans have Indian blood as well. There's Indian Mardi Gras crews that look like you and I. So when Indian. you say Indian, you mean Indigenous Americans. Uh, Indigenous yes. Amer Americans, yes. Mm -hmm. But they still use, and I'm saying Indian, I know it's not acceptable to a lot of people, but um, in um, in New Orleans, like they still use the term, we're going to see the Indians, you mm -hmm. know. Um, and so in this, in, in the Indians there refer to themselves as Indians, right? So I know the politically correct term native is native americans right but in their that culture they still use that same term because they're black you have the choctaws and you know and and those groups right and so um so back to what your question the colorism like even in my own family like i had a grandmother who was a colorist she my grandmother was dark as 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 my style. Black is just very dark. But she favored the lighter her lighter children and her lighter grandchildren over the darker ones, right? And so that they but they were conditioned that way because you had so much mix mixing. And so the slave masters, what did they do? Because if you are light African American, you're closer to white. And so they, in order to cause division, it was to make the white one or the lighter ones make um, feel like they were more special or smarter than the darker ones. So that's how they kept us divided. You know, that's how they kept us divided, you know, with slavery, period. You know, you had the house, you know, Negroes, and then you had the field <laughs> Negroes, right? And the ones who worked in the field, the darker you were, you know, those... But it's even deeper than that because, like you were talking about, the free blacks. Mm -hmm. So you probably with my my family, 
there was a lot of admixture, right? Mm -hmm. But there was that contract, right? So you had these mulatto, right? Yeah. These mulattas that were groomed for French gentrymen. Mm -hmm. And there was a contract that once they reached a certain age, they would be the mistress. They would be taken care of. Their offspring would be taken care of. Mm -hmm. However, that that mistress could have a sister who was not selected or, you know, could have a cousin who also was mulatta but was, was not favored. And their lives would be drastically different. Mm -hmm. So it, it wasn't even just about having European ancestry. Mm -hmm. It was also about being one of the chosen ones. One of the chosen ones. That more being more proximate to not to whiteness, not just through your genealogy, but also through social and economic proximity. Absolutely. Absolutely. And 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 there was so much of that, you know, in New Orleans. Like my great grandmother, she she passed. She was a she was a madam. What does that mean? Okay. So the <laughs> madam so the madam is not the prostitute. The madam is over there over the prostitute. Oh, she was a ma okay. A madam. Yeah. And so they thought she was going in French in the French quarters in New Orleans and, you know, do her thing and so one day, um, one of her her white boyfriend walked her to the ferry and her husband and my her children, which was one, my grandmother, who was very dark, was one of them. Um, the white man saw her family meeting her, and he realized that she was black. And that was the end of, of her career as a madam. Yeah. So we had so there's a lot of a lot of that you know in New Orleans. But anyway, so the color is. Wait, because if I'm confused, I know they're confused. Okay. You're saying that your grandmother was a madam. A madam. Great-grandmother. Your mm -hmm. great-grandmother. Mm -hmm. A madam is basically someone who runs uh, a brothel, if yes. you will. Yes, yes. Um, okay, so she that's what she did. But she was passing. She was passing she for was white. She was passing for white. Your great-grandmother. Mm -hmm. So she had this white boyfriend. Mm -hmm. And one day, a white boyfriend saw her with her actual family. family which were, and, she, and he saw these little black kids in real life. And that's when he... This look, we could talk about this forever mm -hmm. because I was told that my grandmother, who's not from New Orleans, she's from Kentucky, mm -hmm. my paternal grandmother, mm -hmm. she could definitely pass yeah. if not for this hair. She she kept her hair straight for real. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, yeah, she always kept her hair bone straight, but I was mm -hmm. told that she had a sibling. Past and I've mm -hmm. never met this person. Mm -hmm. um, he just just disappeared into the whiteness. But back yeah. to the colorism, I had a um, she would be an aunt by marriage, a great aunt by marriage, mm -hmm. who could not stand the sight of me. She was from New Orleans. And all these people, like our relatives on that side, most of them are really fair skinned. They have like green or hazel eyes. Some of them yes. have blonde hair. Mm -hmm. And I was, I'm the darkest one on that side of the mm -hmm. family. Mm -hmm. She could not stand the sight of me to the yeah. point of where when we would go to LA to visit these, these people because 
the great black migration, you had a lot of people from New Orleans leave and go to Los Angeles. Yes. And Texas. Yes. yes. So did my family. Yeah. 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 So when we would go to visit this, these families in South LA, I had to wait outside on the porch. I wasn't mm-hmm. even welcome in the house because oh, I was just, wow. I just her looking at me would make her sick. Wow. I was a child. Yes. Oh, yeah. When I was, my mom would tell me this story. When I was a baby, a newborn, um, my dad was very dark. My mom is, is, is a little lighter. She's probably a little lighter than you. Um, but my dad was very, very dark. And his sister was very, very light because his mom had a lot of um, Native American blood, right? And so when my aunt came to see me for the first time, she prayed. She was praying, please don't let her be dark. Please don't let her be dark. And then, you know, you're lighter when you're a baby, right? But it was, please don't let her be dark, right? And so my mom would tell me that story, you know? So that's how, but when you're born into that environment, I think I had a, I had a mama that really, like, she kind of protected us in a sense, right? Because she knew her mother. Like, we knew we weren't our grandmother. I knew I wasn't my grandmother's favorite. <laughs> and that, that's my mother's mother. Because we were dark. Like, we, you know, but we didn't care because we thought she was mean anyway. Like, we didn't care. So, we were we were raised where we had enough nurture where we wouldn't, we didn't care if... Our grandmother, you know, didn't favor. We knew she favored the lighter grandchildren, but we didn't care, right? And so you, I think it depends on, you know, how you were raised. You know, I have a lot of earth and fire energy. You know, I'm, I'm a Virgo, Leo, Sagittarius, right? And so I have a lot of earth and fire. So my fire is like, I don't care what you think of me. You know, I I, I, I march to the beat of my own, own drum. So colorism, <laughs> colorism never really did, you know, affect me. You know, and so... What about the politics of the South? The politics of the South, I grew up in the 80s, right? So it's not like... It wasn't like in the, the 60s, right? I th- we were that generation. We were that that generation that transitioned. Like, we 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 are the generation that typed on typewriters and was introduced to computers in the classroom at oh the same time. Oh, my Jesus. Not yes. typewriter. Yes. <laughs> we're that generation. Yes. We, we I, were. I think I was on a typewriter, too. Yeah. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yeah. Yes. That's how I learned to type on a typewriter. Yeah. Yeah. So we had, we did. Of course, you know, no one was openly calling us, you know, the N word or anything like that in in my experience, right? So New Orleans is is a little different when it comes to racism. Yes, there is racism in New Orleans, but it's it. What makes it different, like around Mardi Gras, everybody just come together, black, white. Yeah, it's a party, you know, so we, we come together to party regardless of the race, but it, but you do have racism there, right? Uh, yeah, a little, yeah, we do have, we do have some vicious racism there. Let me there. tell you, because yeah. I was just on vacation and mm-hmm. not really understanding the culture because like I said, it wasn't really passed down to me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I remember going into, what is that, uh, what's it, uh, a Cajun, it was a Cajun. Oh, Cajun, Cajun so it was like a Cajun little 
re- hole in the wall restaurant where they mm-hmm. had a Zydeco band. Mm-hmm. With Zydeco, oh, okay. it's like uh, music indigenous to New Orleans. Mm-hmm. It doesn't really get much outside of that region. Mm-hmm. And we were invited in, and one of the band members wanted to dance with me, mm-hmm. and I did. And it, the place was full of white people, Cajuns, I'm presuming. Mm-hmm. And they were so mad at me, the way they looked at me. And the guy kept saying, don't worry about them. Don't worry about them. You're welcome here. And this was in the early 2000s. Mm-hmm. Then I had a boutique at the time. So I, I found this cute little boutique. And um, the woman who owned it, she was a white woman. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And she said, I can tell you're not from here. And I was like, really? How is it my accent? She was like, no, you look me in my eyes when you talk to me. Really? Oh, yes. wow. And then we went on a swamp tour. <laughs> what year was that? <laughs> look, we went on a swamp tour. Because I was like, I ain't never been on a swamp. Let's go on a swamp tour. We saw alligators or whatever. And it, long story short, one of the places that we're in a boat, one of the places we went past, it was a, like a house that was barely holding on on the mm-hmm. side of this swamp. Yeah. And it said, nigga, go home and spray paint on the, on the house. Mm-hmm. And the tour guide, who was a young white guy, he was like, I'm so sorry. I'm sorry. I was like, where are we? So that was the last time. So yeah. <laughs> yeah so so there, there is, yes, there is race. I mean, there's racism all over America. It's yes, America, there is. Right? <laughs> but that's not what led you but, to, to Africa. Well, the social, the injustice, let me tell you, what led me to Africa, um, America is just no longer was conducive for me. Like, I just, I, I, I just grew to be, become unhappy with everything. Things, wow. Andre. It's everything. The system, um, the the social injustices. Watching our people still um, get killed on television by police officers, right? This, and this was happening even when Obama was in his second term, right? We here we had you know the first what they say African American president, right? And we're watching black men get killed by police officers. That's disheartening. I don't like the um, the um, the microaggressions that that takes place in the workplace, right? Um, no, I don't like the racism. The racism. That's the other thing. I don't feel like I have to prove myself as a a woman of African descent. I don't have to try to sit at your table to eat. I have my own table. I don't care about fitting in to what you say I should be. I am. I am who I am as an African African woman, right? America wouldn't be what America is had it not been for African people. So given that your lineage traces directly back to Nigeria, specifically the Fulani and mm-hmm. Yoruba. Mm-hmm. Why didn't you repatriate to that region mm-hmm. versus coming to Kenya? Okay, so it was important to me, which I am going to Nigeria, by the way, and, and do this connection and all that. I am going to do that. But the reason why I did not go there is because, um, based on my profession, 
I have to be real and I think a lot of people need to be real and be honest with themselves on what they need to function and to be successful um, in the country where they're repatriating to or expatriating to, right? And so for me, because I'm a therapist, because I have an online practice, I knew for my livelihood, I needed a more developed country. I, I, I didn't need a country where the internet would not be sufficient for me. I'm seeing live clients, you know, face <laughs> to face, so I needed very good internet. I also, you know, I needed the power you know, to be able to stay on, right? And so I just have to be realistic. Um, also, being from New Orleans, you know, it's very hot. We have very, very extreme hot summers. And muggy. Hot it's and muggy, it's hot, and we have hurricanes. And I knew that that was something that I did not, I didn't want to live like that anymore. I'm just <laughs> over it. The heat, like the heat, the humidity, I just didn't want it anymore. So weather, and I tell people all the time, you have to, don't look at videos to decide or look at YouTubers to decide which country you want to repatriate to. No, look within. What do you need to That's be so happy? in a country what do you need right and so um so after researching i knew west africa was out <laughs> just the weather because i knew what my deal breakers were right. my deal breakers weather internet power like those were deal breakers for me okay and so um and then also when i was doing my research i don't know i just started feeling an inner pull so that's when, you know, spiritually I started, because I could have gone to um, South Africa. They have good weather. I could have gone to Namibia. Yeah, I could have gone to Namibia, right? But I, I had the pull um, for Kenya. And so when I, I started doing my research and that sort of thing, because I was like so many in the beginning too, looking at YouTube videos and like, oh, I might go to the Gambia. And thank God, you know, <laughs> thank God that I went with them because reality, and, I, and I, I know Gambia is a beautiful place. Some people love it. But for me and what I need to be successful and to have a, a livelihood, I knew that that wouldn't work for me. And so Kenya has the weather. Nairobi, it's for me. I know it gets cold for some people. Because I got on a, a cold but sweater. And look, look at me, look at me. I got a day. She showed up with no jacket. And so for me, Kenya, um, because the coast is hot also. So but that when I need a break, I go to the coast. But um but Nairobi, like is the weather is perfect for me. Okay. The internet, it works perfectly fine for me. <laughs> My power is not G though. We don't have 5G. We got yeah. 4G, but it's fast enough. It's fast enough I can do my job, right? Um I do love the the Kenyans are laid back. No no people are perfect, right? But I like the Kenyans. Like Nairobi, like Kenya, and I did a, I did a video before on this. It's so it's a sweet spot for me. It's a sweet spot for me. Like it is is developed enough to where I don't feel I, I I still feel like I'm in Africa, but it's not so developed to where I feel like I'm in America. It's a, it's just a sweet spot. 
And I believe so many people sleep on Kenya and sleep on East Africa, right? Because the first thing we say as African-Americans, we go into West Africa because we're really West Africans and they picked us up from West Africa. But where, but where did those people come from before they even got to West Africa? That's right, yeah. Okay? So when I got to Kenya and I started... Um, Looking around, I started looking at seeing the men. It was the men that struck me first. I was like, <laughs> I see my brothers. I see my cousins. And so I had not even researched tribes before I came. That wasn't, a, and that wasn't important for me, right? That wasn't on my deal breaker list about tribes or anything like that. But I started learning about the tribes when I got here. And I realized about how many Bantus. You got the Kukuyus, you got the Kambas, the Merus, you have all these different tribes that are Bantu. And I was like, that's why I see my brothers and my nephews. I see them in the faces yeah. of these men. And I felt the connection, right? And so, but spirit led me here. Had I just said, I'm staying in, um, in West Africa because that's where we're picked up from, had I said, I would have missed out on the connection that we also have in East Africa. Because if you think about it, a lot of us came from the Congo. Where do you think the Kukujus here came from? I didn't they came know. from the Congo. Okay. Yes. So there is a, there is a connection. Of course there is. Yeah, so, yeah. but we think because we were picked up. From West Africa, and a lot of us have West Africa. Of course, we were Nigerian, that sort of thing. We 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 believe the story ends there, but no, a lot of those people, those Africans who were in West Africa, came from somewhere. Yeah, of course. And then also, when you learn about the East African slave trade, yeah, you realize that they took people from as far west as Cameroon. And march them through the hinterlands, you know, mm -hmm. to the coastal areas. Mm -hmm. And so there's a, another connection that we have there as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, I have this feeling that every place that I go in Africa is a place that my ancestors have a connection. Absolutely. Whatever the connection is, yes. whether they were marched forcibly whether my lineage is based there, because I really don't choose a country based on research. Mm. And I've been throughout Africa. Um, I choose a country based on a feeling, yeah. a vibration, and mm -hmm. of course, as far as professional opportunities as well. Mm -hmm. But I think there's more, there's more to it than me just doing work in a specific place. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So now... You're here in Kenya. Mm -hmm. Did you visit first before you settled? No. Girl, no. <laughs> Never been here before. Are you serious? I'm, I am serious. All right, I, so you had you felt a pull. I felt a pull. And when I packed my bags, right? <laughs> <laughs> that's how, that, but that's how overall America I was. You was done. I was done, done. <laughs> I was done. I was done, like, I don't like, I hate it here. I don't like it here anymore. Right, and I still go home. Of course, I go with my children and my family's there, but I had that. I was not happy. Listen, I wasn't happy. I was, I was working. I was going through the motions, but inner, inwardly, I wasn't happy. 
I felt I felt lonely there. I got to a place of just feeling lonely because it just seemed like no one, you know, people were going on with their lives, but I was like, I don't like it here. Right? And so when I, I left, I closed my office, which we all did at that time because we had to move all of our clients online. I said, I can live anywhere in the world from my laptop. I called my board, my regular regulatory body, you know, just kind of made sure everything was good and okay. They was like, yeah, it doesn't matter where you are. As long as you're seeing clients that's licensed, you know, in the state, in the state of Louisiana. I mean, you know, as long as they're in Louisiana, as far as the therapy piece, right? And so when I left, I had a made up mind. I said, if I don't like it, I'll just go to another African country. Mm-hmm. There's 54 countries. One is bound to stick. Yeah. Okay. So when I le- I had never been here before, never. Wow, that's powerful. Mm-hmm. Um, I always say this to people. You know, you may not feel like Africa is for you, mm-hmm. but there's 54, arguably 55 countries yeah. in Africa, mm-hmm. each with a very different history, influence, etc. Mm-hmm. Development. Mm-hmm. Pick one. And even if you feel like you can't live here full time, Mm -hmm. consider purchasing property here. Mm -hmm. Think about your legacy. When your legacy is tired of the rat race and the bullshit, think about a place of respite where they can come. Perhaps think of a place of a retirement home. Yes, absolutely. And like I tell people, I was telling my dad, you could buy an island in a whole island in Uganda for less than Mm -hmm. (laughs) $10,000. You know, Mm -hmm. by the time it'll be underwater, you'll be dead. It won't even happen. (laughs) So now that you're here in Kenya, how Mm -hmm. long have you been here? I have been here 19 months. 19 months. Mm -hmm. How are you finding it? Okay, so... I'll say all the good stuff first, right? Okay. Of course, of course I love it. Um, I, the, I love um, the cost of living. The cost of living here is reasonable. Would okay. you mind sharing how much you pay for rent? I pay, when I come, when you convert it to dollars, I pay $343 for rent. You have a two-bedroom? I have a two-bedroom. I have a balcony. Um, I also have another separate balcony where my household does like my laundry and that sort of thing. I have 24 hour security. Um, it's, it's, it's modern. It's, it's my apartment is equivalent to, I guess you would say just a, a, a regular two bedroom apartment in America. Middle class. Wouldn't you say you've been to my place? So yeah. Yeah. How many bathrooms you have? I have two bathrooms. I have, um, a guest bathroom, walk-in shower, um, and in my bedroom, my bedroom is in suite, and I also have a walk-in shower, um, toilet, and all that. Stuff. For three hundred and fifty dollars, like <laughs> three forty-three, and I know I can't, I can't, I, I would not be able to do find anything. You would be box. in the hood, hood. <laughs> it will like, be, be gunshot. You <laughs> would be able to leave your house. But according to, I mean, according to Kenyans, um, my complex is middle class. Like they look, it's like everybody can't afford to live here. So it's 40,000 shillings, which is equivalent with the rate now, $343 a month. 
And so my utilities, I pay twenty dollars a month. Hmm. Well, <laughs> but, but no, I'm, it went up this month because I've been running my heater since it's winter. It only goes up in the winter, so it's I probably paid like forty dollars because I've been running my heater a lot. Um, Does that include water? My water is five dollars a month, five between five six dollars a month. Now my my internet is sixty three dollars a yeah, month. Yeah, internet be pricey. Mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. so you talked about the good things. What what kind of gets under your skin about being here? Um, let's see. Um, seeing people seeing you as a dollar sign, <laughs> like you know, like because once we okay, first of all, they don't know that we're. American, right? We can't drop. We are American. We can't not drop. We we know we're African American, but we are American. So once we open our mouths and they realize that we're American, it automatically reads they have money, and I'm gonna get it. I'm gonna get what they have, right? And so that's annoying, you know, when people just see you as a dollar sign because we come here and we ex- we are expecting. Oh, we're gonna be with our brothers and sisters. <laughs> We are about to connect with our brothers and sisters on the continent. It's going to be this, right? And then when you get here, you realize that, no, they see you as a foreigner. They don't understand your history. They don't know any anything about, you know, the transatlantic slave trade. Some people know, but for the most part, like, they don't know. And then, so that's a little, um, that's frustrating. But that was also one of the things that I have I had to grow and to learn. And so and then and that's why I help other expats now because it's a hard truth. Like when you come to Africa, you cannot come with a bleeding heart and unrealistic expectations. Um I know it hurts because we want to come like we're we're coming to make the connection. Exactly. Right? And so but we think that time froze because we're born in America. We know that we're from Africa. And so within, because we have a void of connecting to home and we were born having that void, whether we we realize it or not, we think that time froze after the last ship departed. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Okay. But we don't realize that time went on and they were being colonized. Right. And they were dealing with their own stuff as we were dealing with our stuff. But inwardly, we have this expectations that the Africans are lined up at the border saying, come home. That's not reality. In West Africa, you do get that a lot. Mm-hmm. You, I mean, I went to school in West Africa. Um, and I've traveled throughout West Africa and get welcome home a lot a lot of that is also commercial driven it's 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 economically driven Mm -hmm. to get closer to you but some of it is legit and I will say that I had a brother welcome me home in Rwanda (laughs) you know and that was the welcome that I didn't even know I needed okay but I I hear you with that because we don't we don't realize that colonization happened and is a real thing and just like we're trying to get over racial PTSD whether they recognize it or not mm-hmm. they trying to get over 
what would you call it colonized PTSD? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Colonization or you know racist because they were colonized by white people, right? So you can call it racial PSD, you know, um, and it's or trauma, still white racial here. Generations, yeah, yeah, and also you've got the Indian influence as well, which mm -hmm. is a complicated history, mm -hmm. very problematic in some ways. However, the average Kenyan will say, I don't come into contact with white people on a regular basis, but that doesn't mean that they don't dictate mm -hmm. that presence, mm -hmm. these governing bodies don't oh, yeah, dictate they're, they're how you live your yeah, life, yeah. Yeah. And so going back to what you were saying about West Africa and you get the, you know, welcome home, sister. And it feels so good. <laughs> welcome home, sister. Welcome home, brother. But do they also say, no, you're my brother. You're my sister. You pay Ghanaian prices only. Do they say that? <laughs> do not get me started. Okay. So, right. So a lot of it, yes, they are sincere, but True sincerity is welcome home. You pay Ghanaian prices. That's yeah. Welcome you home. You my people. You are my people, right? So but I, so I'm saying when we come back, we're we're hoping that they identify us as the same people, and that's not true. However, you know, when you talk to Africans that have been abroad for a while, mm -hmm. they'll say the same thing. Like, I have to speak <laughs> in a certain dialect to get a certain price. But when people see That's how true. you dressed, mm -hmm. you know, they size you up and they give you that price. I mean, one of the things that I do is I work as a buyer mm -hmm. here. So people in the States will contact me. They'll have retail stores or maybe they do vending in the States and they'll ask me to get products for them, wholesale pricing. Mm -hmm. And it don't matter like how I dress. I used to try to dress down. It really don't matter. They size me up and they'll add a few hundred shillings on. At least Hamsini, at least 50 shillings. You know, which that shit adds up. You know, but it's something that I've learned to deal with. And yeah. also, I'm like, I'm prepared to walk away too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've walked away a lot. But I mean, but it is what it is. Like, you have to understand the West has a, an excellent marketing campaign. Like, we are marketed that way, right? I think as African Americans, what you don't, what we don't understand is that we are more American outside of America. I learned that on my first trip to Africa. Really, mm -hmm. it's, it was solidified in me when I went to school at the University of Ghana. I was like, I don't know, 21, mm -hmm. did six months. Mm -hmm. And I think the most American thing about us is convenience. Mm -hmm. We're accustomed to things happening very quickly. I was in school in the mid 90s, so there were lots of power cuts. There's still lots of power cuts in Ghana. Mm -hmm. But I'm like, when I turn that switch on, I expect the, the lights, lights to come, come on. on every that, time. Was not, that, that was not the case. Mm -hmm. And another thing that I've realized about being outside of America mm -hmm. is that we are all so similar as Americans across ethnic backgrounds. Mm -hmm. Then we care to admit. That's the American that piece. Yeah. Potato salad, that mac and cheese, that all of that stuff that we say is ours. Sweet potato pie mm -hmm. that we think as black Americans like that's ours. Mm -hmm. 
We may have revolutionized it. Maybe we, maybe we brought it back from France in, in the case of the mac and cheese. Mm -hmm. But perhaps they add apples to their potato salad. And raisins. But, and raisins. <laughs> but it's still potato salad. You know what I'm saying? Whereas other cultures, it's like, well, what is, what is a potato salad? So... Yeah, you know, they'll and, bring you a potato and a salad. <laughs> they don't know what potato salad is, right? But, <laughs> but if food is culture and culture yeah. is life, and so I use food as an example mm -hmm. because one of the things that I've had to try to, to resolve within myself is this learned distrust and this dislike of white people. It's something that, yes. that I learned. It's yeah. not something that I was born with. It's yeah. not something that uh, that existed within me in high school or even college. So I'm like, what is this? I don't like this thing within me, but it's something that was learned. And then out of that was like an othering. When you dislike somebody, you otherize them. And then coming to Africa and interacting with other Americans, North Americans, I'm like, dang, we are way more similar that we would care to admit. It's interesting you said that because that's another thing that people don't realize. Mama Africa is very healing and, and Africa heals you in ways that you don't expect, right? And so when I first came, of course you come with that, um, they all get on my nerve. And they, <laughs> I don't wanna be around them, I'm sick of them. Like, you know, so you come because you come with the trauma. See, we're all, being born in America, you're born into trauma, okay? And so, we have all the trauma, but the way that the healing happens, that that it that happened to me and is happening with me, right? This healing is not allowing the transatlantic slave trade to... Um, to deplete me or to keep me oppressed in any way, form, way or form, right? And so what I mean by that is when we talk about the transatlantic slave trade, we talk we talk about it as if we were on the boat. Like we were just there on the boat, okay? And so that's the trauma. So we relive the excruciating pain of it. Cause it's like it's like recorded in our DNA. Yeah. It's unprocessed trauma, right? And so when we talk about it, it's very painful. Is is a it, you know we talk about it in a painful way. It's right there underneath the surface. Yes, because it's like we're reliving it. Don't we say the wrong it. thing. Don't say right. Don't say the wrong thing because when I was at the University of Ghana as a twenty-one year old student, my professor was Akan, which. Um, don't get me confused. I know there's the Akan, the Ashanti, mm -hmm. but anyway, that's like the that's like the top tier ethnic group in mm -hmm. terms of power, mm -hmm. from what I was told. Mm -hmm. And I wrote this paper about you know the history of Ghana. It was a it was a Ghanaian history class. But I wrote this paper, and I must mm -hmm. have touched on mm -hmm. the transatlantic slave trade, mm -hmm. which had a major impact mm -hmm. on the not only the economy but the social systems in West Africa. Mm -hmm. And this man, all my paper was like, "Oh, you African Americans, you take this thing so seriously." That the like, and I was like, "That's so offensive." It was very offensive, so offensive as someone that. whose ancestors traded in bodies. You know, 
that was very, very And then it's like, why you don't get that? Because these were African people that was taken from this continent. These were Africans. They weren't African-Americans taken from this continent. They were African people that was stripped from this continent. Because they benefited. They benefited and also the proximity and the alliances that they had with the different Europeans that came yeah. through. Yeah. All of that. But I want to get more into the healing. Okay. Because yes. Can yeah. I just say, like, my journey. Mm -hmm. I started in Zanzibar as far as just selling everything, picking up my life, moving. I started in Zanzibar. And on the surface, I was like, I had come to Zanzibar on my birthday. Mm -hmm. So I, ever since then, I was like, how can I make this my everyday life? Mm -hmm. Went back to the States, was laid off. Mm -hmm. was half-assed looking for a job mm -hmm. like you, was mm -hmm. tired. I'm like, but I didn't know why I was tired. Ah, okay. I didn't know. I just was like, I'm tired of the microaggressions at work. Mm -hmm. I'm tired of working hard and having all this education and experience and just being kept in a certain space. Mm -hmm. So I ended up going to Zanzibar. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until someone asked me, was it racism that propelled you to leave the country? My first response was no. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Zanzibar is beautiful and it's island vibes, it's tropical. Mm -hmm. Then I stopped the camera and I thought deeper. And I was like, you know what? It was, that's exactly what led me here because had I been given the opportunity to self-actualize and thrive professionally and personally, I would still be in the States right now. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. If we were allowed as a people to just be people and not be otherized and all the other things that happened to us, mm -hmm. we probably wouldn't be thinking about Africa at all. Maybe mm -hmm. only the artist class because they're more tapped in. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. because we haven't been given an opportunity to self-actualize mm -hmm. in mass, mm -hmm. I think that's what has our eyes on Africa and Mexico and China, wherever else black people are Because we don't going. feel at home in this place. We don't. Mm -hmm. But it's interesting that you say that because mm -hmm. you said, oh, we're born with this void. But everybody don't feel that void. Mm -hmm. Some people might say, well, Karen, you crazy. Because mm -hmm. I don't feel that way. America is my home. Africa is not my home. We're Af I ain't African. We met those people, right? Mm -hmm. But let's go deep into that, though. Like... Because people also suppress their pain. Sometimes anger. Because when people say, I'm not African. When you hear African Americans say, I'm not African. I'm not going over there. Because they sold us. That's pain. Yeah. That's pain. That's, 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 that's trauma. Right? Okay? And so most of the people who say, I'm not going to Africa. I'm not going over there. I'm not African. I'm not from there. It's the pain that says that. Where does this pain originate from? Again, it goes back to being in, the, in spaces where you're rejected. Rejection. Feeling rejected. Feeling not, be, not being a part of. Fighting just to prove that you're relevant. That you can exist. That you can I mean, like, yeah. how many places? How, I mean, I grew up on the West Coast, which uh, 
statewide, California has 6% black people, mm -hmm. which is a really low number, mm -hmm. really low percentage. Mm -hmm. I'm accustomed to walking into spaces, whether it's an art gallery, a classroom, a store, a restaurant even, mm -hmm. and everybody looking up at me and like, what are you doing here? And somebody said to me, well, maybe they're looking at you like that because you're beautiful. There's a difference in between mm -hmm. they're trying to see if I'm safe. What kind of black person is she? Is she a good black? You know what I mean? Is she a ghetto black? Mm -hmm. Oh, she must know somebody. Who does she know? Like, it's all of this be going on that's in their trauma. Head. That's traumatizing, though, to be in those space, in a space like that. Day in and day out. Day, we live it, like, day in and day out. Okay, let's just say you walk in a bank. <laughs> and there's two white tellers and one black teller. And you're standing in the line. <laughs> Okay, what's the first thing you say in your mind? I hope I get that black teller. I hope I get the <laughs> black teller. Do you know that's not normal? No, I didn't know that was normal. Right. We stand in line. These are day-to-day -day little traumas that show up with us. I hope I get the black teller. Why? Why you hope you get the black teller? And when you go deep into that, you're going into the trauma, the rejection, the pain, being in a place where you don't feel like it's, it's home, right? And, and, mm -hmm. Go ahead. But those are just the microaggressions. Coming up in Burbank, California and Los Angeles, California in the late 80s, early 90s, having educators tell me they don't want me in their classroom. And it's a public school, so technically my parents' tax dollars is paying for that education. Mm -hmm. Having to fight for that education on so many levels. Fight for a, a fight for an A when I know I deserve it. Having to pull in other white people to advocate on my behalf. Mm -hmm. Those are the microaggressions that I grew up with. Mm -hmm being on the track team and going to the women's locker room and niggers and wetbacks go home, spray painted on the door. Mm. This is what I grew up with. And this is the shit that I carry with me to this day. Mm -hmm. And so I moved to Uganda and I ended up renting a room in this white American woman's home. And I thought we was going to be best of buzz because we was from the same state, the same part of the state, mm -hmm. both former athletes. Mm -hmm. And because she played basketball, mm -hmm. I felt like she was familiar with the culture. Mm -hmm. The way that relationship ended is she didn't trust me to have my own key to the place. Mm -hmm. And she basically physically accosted me. And it was just a long story. So after I left that situation... I was jumpy, and I was like, Tadra, you have racial PTSD, and you need to get some help. So I was looking for a therapist in Uganda, and there were all these European expats that were willing to help me. And I was like, you will not be both my tormentor and my savior. Mm. Can you? And they were like, we'll refer you to someone else, someone African, but they never did. 
I found a Ugandan woman therapist mm -hmm. who had never experienced racism in her life. Mm -hmm. She told me about a situation. She went to a conference in Europe and she had experienced racism but wasn't cognizant of it. Mm -hmm. It was so bad, whatever happened to her, mm -hmm. that bystanders intervened on her behalf. Mm -hmm. And she was like, well, what's happening? So she really could not help me. So I want to delve into yeah. what needs to happen for African Americans, Africans in the diaspora to heal from the racism, the discrimination, the micro and macro aggressions. Okay. So I'm going to ask you, I'm going to start with the example you just gave when you were in Uganda and you had this experience, right? And you said you were shaken. As you tell, I want you to just think about that story. Think about, think about that event and what happened, right? Mm -hmm. And just kind of drop into your body. Do you feel any disturbance? when you think about that story that day? My rational mind says it's over. Okay, I want you to drop into your body. My body is like, that was fucked up. <laughs> okay, so that was fucked up. In the, so let's, what's the feeling of that was fucked up? Where do you feel that in your body? My heart center and my gut. You feel it in your heart center and your gut. The trauma is still there. It's unprocessed trauma. Okay? And so one of the things, um, I work with trauma clients. And I use, um, one of the interventions I use is EMDR. And I'll tell you a little bit. EMDR is basically using bilateral stimulation to process your trauma. What does it stand for? Okay, it stands for eye movement, reprocessing, desensitization. But they're always called that. Most of my clients use tapping, rocking. It's, oh. It's because you're, you're stimulating your brain. The pain that you feel, like in your solar plexus there, is that pain is in your right brain. So in anything that's similar that happens, it, it connects itself to that memory network. So it's like you're reliving the pain over and over and over again. That pain that you're feeling, it doesn't have a timestamp. It's not saying, oh, well, this happened in Uganda. This happened. No, that pain that you're feeling, that incident was in, in Uganda. If you felt that same thing, let's just say when you were in college, that, that experience is being attached to that pain. Right, because it doesn't timestamp it. So you're carrying around this pain in your body. And the reason why black people carry this pain around so much is because we don't like to deal with feelings. So we we shove it and we suppress. So we never process our trauma because we suppress. I don't have time to deal with that. I got to keep it moving. I have children to feed. Yeah, I don't have yeah. I don't have time to cry about stuff. So we suppress it, but we, what we don't realize that we're doing is we're just caring and nurturing our trauma. So when you go back, so when you go back to even some of our indigenous practices, we were talking about New Orleans, New Orleans earlier, right? When there's funerals, even in Africa, in West Africa, when there's funerals, what's happening? After the funeral, we're, we're dancing, dancing, rocking back. That's bilateral stimulation. That kind of helps you get through. And we, we're, the word is not hollering. Yes, wailing. We're also wailing. 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 That's Getting a it out. As well. There's screen therapy yeah. where people just, ah, like you know, we just go, you just scream it. Ah, that's another form of therapy, right? 
And so with EMDR, so if I were to take you to process that, that pain and we're using, and I'm taking you using bilateral stimulation and we're processing that, what's happening is the pain is coming out of your body. It's coming from your right brain and now it's going into your left brain. So now that story becomes a memory. It's something that you can talk about, but you're not feeling that in your solar plexus. You're not feeling the excruciating pain of it, but it's a story that you now tell, okay? So when you look at us as a whole, um, one of the things I was saying earlier as African people, how we live the transatlantic slave trade as if it just happened because we carry the pain of it in our body, right? And so the goal is to process the pain that so that now it becomes a memory and we live a life of transcendence. We transcend the pain. The, the pain. Yeah. We transcend the transatlantic slave trade. We stand on the shoulders. It empowers us. We come from these powerful people who built America, right? And so we transcend it. So it empowers us. So now we're not living the excruciating pain, but we're honoring the ancestors. We're honoring them to be able to be back on the continent. We're honoring them to be because we're educated in where we are and how we've overcome. So I'm not living the pain of it, but I am living in the power of it. That's that's very empowering, and I want to get to that place. Um, we all are getting there. I didn't think that I carried all of this with me. I want to go back to bilateral stimulation. Mm -hmm. Break that down. What does that mean? Okay, so bilateral stimulation is you're, is, is you're using your left brain and your right brain to process. So it's this, this, that, that, that. It's like a, a rhythm of your left brain, right brain. So process. how is this happening? Come in. Right, left, right, left, right brain, left brain, right brain. You still each side, the tapping, the rocking. Yeah. We, Let, let's we, go back in our culture. Yeah. The old ones in the church. Yeah. Right? And we're rocking. That's about, this is something that we have always done as African people. When a baby cries, we tap. We rock, right? We can't, babies are soothed when we rock, right? That's bilateral stimulation, right? And so you don't just, everybody just do bilateral stimulation. You have to identify targets. So when once, you know, and, and therapists know how to do this. You have to identify the targets. You have to make sure that you're on target with your processing, right? And it goes deep. Like you're going all, sometimes you're going all the way back to childhood. Yeah. Because you got to get to the first memory. Yeah. And so, and so, bi so bilateral stimulation, right brain, left brain, right brain, left brain, right brain, right brain, and and you're reliving that trauma, and so now it's it's, it's processing over to your left brain. You wanted to process to your left brain and not <laughs> carry the pain in your body because pain and trauma we carry it in our body, and especially Black women. That's why I love. I, I'm telling. It, it seems easy. It's easier said than done. That's why you need to be with a therapist when you're for trauma. Mm -hmm. Life coaches, you don't go to life coaches for, for trauma. And I'm a life. I'm a therapist and life coach, but you don't go to life coaches for trauma. 
because you have to know how to process this. So some women um, that come and do this and this stuff start coming up. This is a lot of stuff. They can lose. The, it's not that you're going to lose your mind, but it's almost like, ah, you know, it's screaming. It's emotional, right? It's because it's all of that stuff that's just been bottled up. And we carry it. And so what happens when we keep it bottled up, we develop depression, we develop anxiety, we develop stress, we develop worry. Some people have um, borderline personality disorder. All because you have stuck all that pain, pain from when you were a child. And that pain also affects you. It's in your subconscious. You don't realize it. It's a, it affects all of your decisions. It affects how you function in relationships, how you perceive the world, how you see people, you know, are you mistrusting of everybody, right? And so it's trauma. So yeah, so my in my practice, I have oh, been moving more <laughs> towards, I just want to, that's all I want to do is, and it's, it's, it's called it's somatic healing, you know, when you're dealing with mind and body, right? It's not necessarily talk because someone can come to me and they may say, I experienced this trauma. I don't want to really talk about it. Mm. I don't want to talk about this trauma, Karen. But I do want to get past it. And I'll say, well, let's give it a name. Mm -hmm. let's, let's name this trauma. And how are you feeling? Mm. You know, it can be trauma A. When was the, the, another time you felt that way? Let's name that trauma. That's trauma B. When there's another time, because you're dealing with the the body. So you don't even have to, I don't even have to come to you and lay my whole life on the carpet for no. you to heal me is what you're saying. No, I don't. And, and no. this is for people who don't recognize the metaphysics, the mind, body, spirit. Mm -hmm. We know for a fact that African-Americans telomeres are significantly shorter than white Americans. Mm -hmm. And it's because of the trauma that we endure while we're incubating. Mm. You know, uh -huh. you are gifted and trained in a number of different modalities. Mm -hmm. Can you list them? Okay. So cognitive behavior therapy. So cognitive behavior therapy is just basically changing how you think. Okay, how you how you how you process things. So let's just say, um, let's just say you say, okay, I know this person, she doesn't like me. I'll, I'll use something that's simple, right? And she doesn't like me. That's the thought, and the feeling that I have is I have some sadness because she doesn't like me, and because I have some sadness. When I see her, I'm rude to her because I know she doesn't like me. Okay? <laughs> so you have a thought yes. that's attached to your feelings. And your feelings is attached to how you react. So everything starts with the thought. So in cognitive behavior therapy, it would be, so how do you know? She doesn't like you. Mm -hmm. What is the evidence that you have mm -hmm. that she doesn't like you? Well, because I just saw how she looked at me one day. And my mama used to look at me like that. 
how shit gets started. Yes. <laughs> so now we going into your head because that's not evidence that she doesn't like you. Did she say she doesn't like you? So that's another thing that black women do. Not, <laughs> all of us do it, right? But I'm talking about black women. But we make so many assumptions. Based on a moment when that person could have had a bad day, a bad week. And so, so we call that irrational thinking. So we're trying to replace the, the we want to start replacing these irrational thoughts with more realistic and true thoughts. So that's like kind of cognitive behavior therapy. Um, also, um, solution-focused therapy. So people come to me, they may have a problem, right? And so if you come to me with a problem, so now we need to find a resolution. And so there's steps, you know, to take for you to get to your resolution. What's the outcome? What do you want, right? And so now I'm developing plans and we're doing this together. So what's the small step you can take this week to get here? Right? So this is solution-focused therapy. Is that what right? we did? Because um, I've, come, I've come to Karen. I've had a couple <laughs> of sessions with you. Uh-huh. <laughs> She's helped me um, formally and informally solution. navigate yes, solution romantic focus. situations. Mm-hmm. So it was solution, but it was solution focused. Since she said it, usually I would not say anything, but uh, it's solution focused and life coaching. So this is a thing, but people don't realize a therapist uses life coaching as an intervention. Like you, you don't want to use one prescription for everybody. It depends on what the person is preventing, um, presenting with. So some of it can be a little eclectic. That's, that's also a form. Um, client-centered therapy. I have some... Uh, oh, let me go back to eclectic. Like, it could be a little mixed of all of them. It could be you a mix of different ones. incorporate spirituality. Yes, so I was getting ready to get to that. So okay. it could be spirituality that can be included in it. Because if you have a person that comes... Like, I, I, I see Ephi readers, Christians, Muslims, Hebrew Israelites... People who's just new on their spiritual path, right? And so when those clients come, you know, the treatment plan and the intervention is based upon who they are, right? And so, you know, sometimes I may pull a card and then sometimes it may be an app. I'm not a tarot reader, mm-hmm. but I may, but I, you know, I may have an Oracle deck and pull a card, right? Mm-hmm. In a, in a therapy session. Do you see what I'm saying? Or... Someone that's into crystals or, you know, or whatever the case may be, you know. Okay, so this week, you know, as you're journaling, you may want to you have your rose quartz there. Mm. Do you see what I'm saying? And so I, I always say I'm not your mama's therapy because I can't be put in a box. I, I, you know, so it's, I, I, can, I can relate to everybody because I have practiced different spiritual systems or become aware. I don't, I, I would never say, you know. I'm a Christian and that's it. I'm a Buddhist and that's it. I'm I'm not created that way. It took me a while to evolve into this, right? I never get because sometimes you can people can um, make a religion out of spirituality. True. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so as a therapist, I am I'm the people's therapist. I love that. And I like what you said. I'm not your mother's therapist. I'm not your mother's If our therapist. mothers had even had They didn't even have a friend. 
what child? That was the pastor or something. Right, yeah. <laughs> mm, girlfriends. However, I love your story. I We're not going to, because we can talk about yeah. your path. In religion, to oh, spirituality, yes. so you That's like a myself. Whole another story, yeah. You, you like myself, were brought up in the Christian church, mm-hmm. and eventually, kind of just follow followed your intuition. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Talk to us a little bit about that yeah. journey. Yes. So I am. Uh, I'm glad you asked me that because I don't get to tell the story a lot. Um, so I am an ordained minister in a Christian church. Um, I was baptized at nine years old. But what's strange is my mother was not a, a church woman. Yes. So it was someone in our neighborhood mm-hmm. that took us to church and, you know, you get baptized and all of those things. So by the time I was 12, you know, you do teenage stuff, you stray off. But when I turned 21, okay, I got back into the church. And there's another story behind that, but for the sake of time. So I, I got back into church and I went hard. Like for... I know a whole decade. When I went hard, I'm a Virgo. So Virgo's like, oh, 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 when we go, we're going to go, right? And so for a whole decade, I didn't listen to any secular music. I didn't what? drink. I didn't do any. It's just cold turkey. Wow. I think the whole 90s, I kind of miss. I, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think I just kind of the whole 90s. And so, and then on that journey, um, I, I was over several ministries and then I became a minister and I preached and I did all of those things, right? And so one day I was sitting in the pulpit and, and the I had a female pastor, which was which is progressive in the back in the black church. Mm-hmm. So the pastor was preaching and I was sitting there and I was like, it's more to it than this. Mm. After 10 years, that's what you Oh, it was more than that. I think it had been about 15 years at that time that I had been in church. I said, there's more to it than to it than this. I said, there's more to, you know, the programs and the conferences and the, the, the praise teams and the praise teams saying, stand up, clap your hands, give God some praise. You know, you can do better than that. Touch your neighbor, all this stuff, right? I was like, and so tears just started rolling down my face. And I said, God, I don't care if I'm on one side of the street and everybody else is on the other. I'll be by myself as long as I know you're with me. And about maybe six months after that, I was living in Tennessee at the time I lost my job. And so so I wind up coming back and moving back to New Orleans. And I, I still didn't quite get it because I kept trying to find a church. I'm like, I'm a minister. I'm a preacher. You're supposed to have a church. You need your spiritual covering, right? Still trying to do that. But I was just being pulled, being pulled. And even when I was in church, I was spiritual. So in church, you know, we were laying on, I was, you know, involved in laying on the hands, casting out demons, doing all of these things. It's spiritual work, Right. And so, you know, um, speaking in tongues and all those things, you know, speaking in tongues, that's a form of chanting. Right. Right? I never really thought of it like Laying that. on the hands, Reiki. Right? And so, um, and so, just so when I moved back home, being on, I, I was lonely. It, was, it became a lonely journey because it was, it was like can't fit in any church anymore Mm -hmm. and so you have to understand when I was preaching I was a very very authoritative this is the Lord right and so um 
And so it was when I went on this journey, I started reading other books, even when I was still in Tennessee. You know, I read books like The New Earth, right? Eckhart Tolle. Uh-huh. Mm -hmm. The Power of Now. Mm -hmm. um, I, I started becoming more attractive to a lot of the Buddhist principles, right? And so, but everything that I was reading, it would take me back to the scripture. And it gave me a deeper understanding of even the scripture. And so when you're researching and you're trying to like figure out where you're supposed to be, when you come out, you have these Hebrew Israelites and these black conscious people that say, you're stupid. You're following the white man's God. You're doing that, da, 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 da. And so a person that's trying to be on the new, just trying to figure things out, it's like, ooh. You know, it's like, I don't, I don't serve a white man God. My church never taught me that Jesus was white. Oh. Do you see what I'm saying? I've never been to a church and I was taught that Jesus was right, white. Actually, it showed the church, my last church that I was a part of, talked about Jesus being a liberation. It was liberation theology, like Jesus being a liberator, right? And so I'm seeing all these people talking about the white man, God, and you doing da, 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 da. And so that was an immediate turnoff for me this black consciousness because I saw them as ignorant because they didn't they don't they didn't they don't know church. See I know church like in and out the from the pulpit to being in the pew, the backgrounds of it, I know church life. So me transitioning out, they sounded foolish to me. I so my pull wasn't a, a black conscious thing. It was spiritual. See, I saw, I see God as spiritual, right? And even to this day, and people may not understand this, but I would never denounce Christianity. I'm never going to do it. So there's a healing that needs to happen for all people, specifically in this context, people of African descent. And those of us in the diaspora, um, whether it's the global north, whether it's racial PTSD, mm -hmm. Africans here on the continent, the colonized mindset. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted you to talk about what your experience has been dealing with this colonized mind and how everything that is rooted in Africa has been demonized. It's a demon, right? It's all, like these waist right. beads I got on witchcraft. Right. <laughs> Everyday witchcraft. Yeah. How have you found your footing? How do you relate to people with that mindset? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. And so, you know, and I used to be that person that, that called everything demonic. And because you're, you do, you have this colonized mind. But what we don't realize is even during the transatlantic slave trade, when you want to oppress a, pe a people, you change their concept of who God is, okay? And that's where it started for us. You know, even in Ghana, you had missionaries that were, that there was a church on top of those dungeons and they were anointing those Africans as they were in, enslaving them. That's right. In the name of religion, right? And so when you change a people's concept of God, you're going to oppress them. And so it's about going back, even the very Bible that they used to oppress us with, we're not, re we're, 
we interpret it how somebody tell you to interpret it but all of our answers are there also right mm -hmm. and so um going back to our indigenous practices is how we can start undoing some of these things right even if you are because a lot of africans have been missionaries have been here right and we and, and a lot of african people are deeply rooted in christianity in a way of how they're told to be a christian so to decolonize your mind use that same bible mm. they were they were sacrificing cows and calves and sheep in the bible right right but when you have a yoruba woman cutting a chicken neck it's a demon right it's, it's demonic when they do blood sacrifices it's demonic when it's an african woman doing it but it's not demonic when we're told to drink Jesus' blood. This is a symbol of right, the blood right. and the body for communion. It's, it, you know, and it's demonic, you know, when you have maybe some of the Kikuyu elders to go on Mount Kenya and slaughter some animals as a sacrifice or to hear, you know, to hear from God or make a sacrifice for rain or whatever the case may be, right? And so we are, our, our everything that's African is demonic as a way to continue to oppress us. Our power, we are we are a spiritual people, just period. We are a spiritual people, and our power as a people is tied into our spirituality. And right. if we don't get back to some of those those spiritual practices, then we're never going to get to where we're supposed to be. Were you shocked to find out that? Africans were so disconnected from their traditional practices? No. Because no. I kind of, when I was researching, I kind of knew that they had been colonized. And I saw a couple of things. Like when I first got here, when I saw the churches on TV here, I don't know if you've ever seen that. It looked, I haven't. And that's how you, that's how you know it's, um, that's how you know it's a worldwide agenda. Because I'm like, how are some of these churches just like our churches? We're going to switch gears. Okay. We're going to switch gears mm -hmm. all together. You and I are both here mm -hmm. in Kenya, mm -hmm. post-divorce. Mm -hmm. You actually have children. You have yeah. two adult children, two girls. And we are 45-plus. Um, mm -hmm. I'm 51. 51. Mm -hmm. I will be 49 this year. Mm -hmm. And we have started life over, yeah. you know, and I hope that that is, I hope that this is inspiration mm -hmm. for people our, around our age mm -hmm. who have lived lives socially, mm -hmm. professionally, spiritually. Mm -hmm. It can be done yeah. and it can be fulfilling. Everybody want to know. <laughs> Not what the people want to know. What Everybody want to know. <laughs> What is it like dating in this part of the world at this age? I'm not dating. I haven't met anyone. I've been, been here 19 months and I have not met anyone. And I'm okay with that though. So, <laughs> no, listen, listen to what I'm saying. Now, I, I believe I'm in the space where I'm so happy with myself. Um, I feel whole within my 
myself, right? I I live my life. I do what I want to do. I do it when I want to do it. I do what I feel like. I, I, I This is liberation. I love freedom and I love um, liberation. Now, is that to say she must not want a man? No, it's not to say that, right? Because I, I, it would be nice to meet someone. It would be nice to have a life partner. I, I, I do welcome those things. But for me, it had, it's difficult finding someone who can accept me wanting them instead of needing them. And what I'm finding is, even when I think of, look at my past experiences, right? Men are comfortable, and I'm not talking about the African men, so I, I, I think I'm really talking more like African-American men. Okay. I'm not really talking about the Kenyan men. Now, I know men are men, but I don't know if this is going to be a cultural difference or not. So, for instance, with an African-American man, I'll just say specifically, if there's a woman, she's working, she got her own career, she's doing all, all this, right? The question will come, well, what do you need me for? You got all your stuff. You know, you got your house, you got your car, you got your this, you got your that. You got all your stuff going on. So what you, you know, what, what you need me for, right? And so, and, and my answer will be, I don't need you. And that's not an insult to tell a man, I don't need you. It's a compliment to say, I don't need you, but boy, I want you. I want you. <laughs> I just, the, just, the, just your, your essence. Man, I want you, your essence, your swag, your energy. Boy, I want you. I don't need you to rescue me. I don't need you to save me. I don't need you for hidden low self-esteem issues. I don't need you for any of that. I'm good, but boy, I want you. Because you and you alone add value to my life. I may not need you to pay my mortgage, but when you pay it, boy, thank you. <laughs> thank you. I may not need you to buy me a bag, or I may not need any of those things for you, but when you do things just because you want to, you know, you might you might get it three times in a day. Oh, you know what I'm saying? I'm saying it's a difference. And so I spent... My younger years, there was a need somewhere in me. And I do feel like, I, I feel he's coming. I do. You do. I do feel he's coming. And right? where do you feel it in your body? I feel it. <laughs> Y'all want to know where I feel it? Because <laughs> you can feel good stuff in your body. <laughs> but I do feel he's, I do feel he's coming. But he's, he's finding me busy with my life. He's finding me living. He's finding me already happy. You know, I wanted to talk about this because, you know, people, we, are, we, we like, as human beings, we like routines mm -hmm. and patterns, mm -hmm. but we're also a very malleable, flexible species. Mm -hmm. That's not the word I'm looking for, but mm -hmm. you get mm -hmm. what I'm trying mm -hmm. to say. Mm -hmm. So you can start over in your chosen part of the world and find love and find community mm -hmm. and and yeah. really like find another career. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You can. And, and, and it doesn't, you can't put an age on that. 
Like you can build a new life and you really can build the life that you want. Like he, be me being here, you know, my business is here also now, right? I am happy. I am happy. I This is the happiest and the most freeing that I feel, right? I'm happy. I'm free. Like, oh, I just cannot even, you know, describe this feeling, right? In your professional opinion mm -hmm. and in the core of your being, what do you think is required for African-Americans and also those in the diaspora, others who were ripped from their homeland? Mm -hmm. What is required for us to heal from mm -hmm. our traumas? Mm -hmm. The first thing I'm going to say is therapy. And and I'll, I'll go back. I'll go back a little. Let me go back. Just realizing that you do have trauma, because a lot of us don't know, don't realize that we have these racial, this racial-based trauma within us. We don't realize it's there until we leave America. But the reality is, everybody won't won't leave America, right? And so I I say, you know, therapy is uh, an excellent way. Let's remove the stigma. When it, as it relates to therapy, it doesn't mean that you, you know, everybody's just, you know, people think that therapy is if you have schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, you know, I don't need nobody getting in my business, all of these things, right? Um, therapy is important. Let's normalize therapy. And I'm so grateful you have people like Charlemagne and all these celebrities, Taraji P. Henson, like all these celebrities are starting to come out and people are being real about their mental health. And they are dealing with their issues, right? And so I think for African Americans, we have to be ready and willing to heal. Although we have all these celebrities that's coming out, the, the danger of it, in a sense, is now therapy in some circles, it becomes trendy. And so when people come, and I've seen this, you know, people come and it's just like, well, I just need you really to help give me new ways to nurture my pain. Right. ways to nurture it because some people some some of us are so comfortable with living with the pain and the trauma mm. like we get a bit we it's almost like you identify with it in a sense it becomes a part of your identity and they don't want to let that go wow. people don't want to feel pain especially back black people we do not want to feel emotional pain so the problem with the with therapy and on the other hand is like rainbows in you know Rainbows and butterflies, right? But therapy is actually dungeons and dragons. Because yeah. real healing, it's like going to surgery. It's like when you go to surgery, a surgeon cuts you open to get out some infection. They're going to cut you and they're going to dig that infection out and then, you know, suture you so that you can heal. And so that's how therapy is. It's to cover all of the dark areas, to get deep and pull out all that pain. All that infection, You're, we're infected emotionally, we're infected mentally. And a therapist that heals is to uncover all of that and start digging that out. But you have to want to heal. You have dropped so many gems. You have less, left us with so many lessons. Mm, thank you. And food for thought. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much. Thank you for, for having me. To come on. I'm you happy see, to be here. She and I could talk all, all day. day. <laughs> all day. Can I tell them my YouTube?
Yes. Okay, so I do have a YouTube channel where I talk about my journey. We, we, I do interviews, talk about mental health, all those things, right? I show Kenya, and so um, I invite you to Karen's World. It's Karen's World, K-R-E-N-S-W-O-R-L-D. I am on YouTube, and um, my practice, if you're needing therapy, um, my practice is, um, you can reach me at www infinity 8 llc and 8 is spelled out so um www.infinity8llc.com please check karen out on her channels on her website i hope that you are inspired and empowered to blacks it to africa see you next time